Chapter 11. Ujharod, the Ethnic Brew After the night train from Kiev had trundled on for twelve hours, we descend one morning down the Carpathians and out onto the lowlands along Ukraine's western rim. The train swings round a few hundred metres from the Hungarian border before we leisurely squeal into Ujharod. I find myself in one of Ukraine's least typical cities. Compact, small-scale, a little old-fashioned, as if a slice of Central Europe has been cut out and plonked onto the edge of Ukraine's plate. The Transcarpathia region, Carpathia Oblast, is the only mountainous part of Ukraine, a massif that blocks off Romania in the south and swings in towards Slovakia in the northwest. Ushorod is 30 kilometres from Hungary and just a short walk from the border with Slovakia. A little further north, the region borders Poland, and in the south, Romania. Transcarpathia has been viewed from many quarters as a hidden hinterland, sunken behind the mountains to the Ukrainian in a remote east to the Hungarian or Slovak. My temporary accommodation is in a Soviet-built concrete tower block estate just south of the heart of the city, complete with two wrecked cars in a courtyard shaded by tall trees between the buildings. Should I find it charmingly permissive? Or deplore the lack of behavioural and institutional wherewithal to remove dumped cars within a reasonable space of time? I do some strolling around the liminal parts of the city, where city imperceptibly morphs into countryside. The further I go from the centre, the more the gardens become small holdings, with more hens, and eventually farms. The centre of Usharod has a small town pleasantness, balanced between carefreeness and characterlessness, with a generous helping of shops and bronze statues gracing facades and bridges. The classic Central European cafe culture has given way to trendily furnished but anonymous global coffee houses. Towering over the city is the palace, erected in the 14th century by the French-Hungarian knight Philippe Druget, with its unobstructed view of hostile intruders from all directions. These days, however, no invading Mongolian armies are seen galloping forth in the distance. Instead, what threatens the region is the ongoing exile. Today, Ukrainians or Ruthanians make up the city's majority, but there are also Hungarians, Jews, Romani, Romanians and Slovaks. The formation of the Ukrainian identity is a work in progress, but nowhere is the notion of national affiliation more fluid than in Ujharod. I've arranged a meeting with Bandy Scholtes, local author and cultural activist who meets me by the pedestrian bridge that spans the river and binds the city's social life. Sorry I'm late, he says. I was up until four this morning and I'm a bit hungover. In the summer, we party every night as all our friends who work abroad come home. Bandy Scholtes is around 40, with a beard and sticky-up hair who's as quick-witted as he is gap-toothed. He's wearing checkered shorts red trainers, and a blue home-printed t-shirt bearing the legend, The My English is Bed. He is stopped by a young woman who wants to buy his latest book, which he obligingly signs on the bridge. During the 1990s, he lived abroad, 
and since having returned to his home city, he has written books on subcultures, life in exile, and his feelings about his origins. We stroll down some central pedestrianised streets before sitting down in a restaurant. My family's language is Hungarian, but I wrote my books in Ukrainian. It feels more natural, he explains, and then excuses himself. Can you hang on for ten minutes? I've just been offered some weed by an old friend who I recently bumped into. He's waiting outside. I'll be right back. Summer and the good things in life. I've got a beer and Wi-Fi. Who's complaining? Ujarod's role as a floating trophy in a disputed borderland during the 1900s has no precedent in Europe. With the brief exception of the ravages of the 13th century, when the city was burnt to the ground by Mongol hordes, Ushorod, or Ungvar as it was known then, had belonged to Hungary since the 900s. In 1876, the dual monarchy of Austria-Hungary was proclaimed, and Transcarpathia, along with large swathes of western Ukraine, fell under its domains. After the First World War, the empire collapsed, and in 1919, after a short-lived attempt to establish an autonomous Ruthenian state, Ushorod was driven into the arms of Czechoslovakia. In the interbellum, parts of the northern bank of the Uge were developed, giving the city a new, tighter character. Two decades later, the playing field was shifted again. For a brief moment, just before the outbreak of the Second World War and a shift in the power balance, on the 15th of March 1939, the Ruthenians made a fresh attempt to declare an independent Carpatho-Ukrainian republic. Independence lasted 24 hours until the Hungarians marched into Transcarpathia and retook the city with Hitler's blessing. Bloody purges in Ushorod ensued. After the end of the war in 1945, the USSR took over the region and reshaped it along conventionally austere Soviet lines. Forty-five years later, in 1991, the city became part of an independent Ukraine. My grandfather lived in the same place his entire life, but changed nationality five times. He was born in Austria-Hungary, became a Czechoslovakian citizen after the Great War, then a Hungarian citizen during World War II, and Soviet citizen after that, and finally died as a Ukrainian. And all this without setting foot out of his home city. This is unique. Normally you change country when you move. Here all you have to do is stay put. It's a cheap way of getting to see new countries, says Bandy Scholters. As a resident of Ushorod, Nationality is subordinate to the question of one's relationship to the city and its legal system and economy. Nationality, which in Western Europe in the 2010s made a comeback as a emotionally charged identity, is for many with a Transcarpathian worldview a nebulous, fluid phenomenon and nothing upon which to hang your identity. As for ethnicity, it's not a big conflictive issue here says Bandy Scholtes. We're so mixed and have a tradition of living with different groups in Ushorod. Or, rather, it is a bit with the Romani. They often live outside society with social problems and criminality. I was robbed of cash myself after an evening DJing, but I only had myself to blame in a way, as I got paid in cash, which I flashed about and then this guy followed me home that night. He was much bigger than me, so when he took the cash out of my pocket and ran off, I didn't take up the chase.
The question of language and cultural legacy, however, is a more sensitive one. In the 2000s, the region opposed centrally tabled motions to establish Ukrainian as the only official language in schools. The people of Carpathia Oblast were thus an aberration on the decade's electoral map, appearing more akin in their voting patterns to the denizens of eastern Ukraine's Russophone cities. Former President Poroshenko's rallying cry, Language, Faith, Army, was here met with scepticism. The language issue is important, says Bandy Schultes. The Hungarian heritage has been diluted. I speak Ukrainian with my friends, Russian with my wife, but Hungarian with my son, parents and a few relatives. Hungarian gives me a broader view of things and has helped me become acquainted with cultural phenomena that would otherwise be inaccessible to me, he explains. Bandy Schultes takes a swig of his beer and wonders if ethnicity is a greater problem in countries that are unaccustomed to diversity. Maybe the conflicts get more bitter if you've got two dominant groups. Here, there are so many of all kinds, he says. Another reason why the multicultural Ushorod is not being torn apart by ethnic strife is that the region rides on a shared and familiar contemporary narrative, which, like in the rest of Ukraine, is about years of coming to terms with its Soviet legacy and reaching out to the EU. Since 2017, Ukrainians have been able to travel to Western Europe without a visa. It was then that President Petro Poroshenko met his Slovakian counterpart, Andriy Kiska, at the Ushorod border crossing to jointly welcome the tearing up of the paper curtain that separated Ukraine from the EU. The draw of the West has grown steadily stronger. While it has bled competence and initiative from Transcarpathia, it is also an important source of revenue for the country as large sums of money are sent home to close and extended families. 60% of the migrant workers abroad say that they one day want to return home, and when they do, it will have to be with capital to invest. Contrary to what one might think, labour migration into Hungary shot up during the latter half of the 2010s, and over half of it was Ukrainian. Yet some foreign investors have also started to peer beyond the country's eastern border, where wages are lower and the level of education is rising. Razivka, a district to the south of Ushorod, for instance, is home to US-owned electronics manufacturer Jabil Circuit which will soon have close to 4,000 employees. I thought I had come to a Hungarian-speaking city, but during my first walk around Ushorod, I hear to my surprise barely a word of Hungarian on the streets. 150,000 ethnic Hungarians live in Transcarpathia. In the early 1900s, 80% of the city's population was ethnic Hungarian, but after waves of emigration, just under three quarters are now ethnic Ukrainians, or members of the group who during different epochs of rule have been called Ruthanians, Rusnaks or Rusins. The marked attenuation of ethnic diversity reflects Ukraine as a whole. Romanians, Jews, Bulgarians, Hungarians, Belarusians and Poles each make up less than 1% of the population. The country's demographic profile as a whole is dominated by ethnic Ukrainians, 
77.5%, followed by Russians, 17.5%. But does ethnicity matter these days? Well, yes, our need for at least a collective identity is deep-rooted. It can give life greater meaning than personal projects or nuclear families, and the need increases in times of threat, occupation, or foreign suppression. At the same time, nationality is just one of many possible identities. An identity that revolves around a city, a province, a continent, or a religion can be at least as useful. And national classifications can pertain to diverse phenomena, from the narrow formal citizenship of a state to ethnicity, which encompasses customs and language, to culture with its values and norms, to origins in terms of the family's biological or cultural roots. Collective identities are another way for other people to understand us, our impetuses, our customs and our worldview. Where do you actually come from? Before asking that question, one should define the meaning of the word actually, actually. Andy Warhol, arguably the 20th century's most pioneering pop artist, was asked during his hectic celebrity life in the 1960s and 70s New York where he came from. In an environment where everyone came from somewhere else, the question was commonplace. He usually just gave a curt reply. Nowhere. I come from nowhere. Warhol's parents had emigrated to the industrial city of Pittsburgh in the United States, where they made a humble life for themselves. But they had roots as Ruthenians, or more specifically as ethnic Lemkos, from the city of Mikova in northeast Slovakia, close to the Polish border. It was where nowhere was. Warhol's reply was wonderful in its unvarnished modernity but also comprehensible. Who in those restless days of the US would know what a Ruthenian was? Or a Lemko? What, come to that, is Slovakia? It is the same as Slovenia. Or is it Slavonia? Incidentally, when Warhol was alive, there was no separate state of Slovakia, Ukraine, or any Ruthenia. Give me a minute. Let us try to sort this out. A Ruthenian or Rusin, can, broadly interpreted, be someone with origins in the former Kievan Rus culture, who speaks an East Slavic language and either has a Russian Orthodox or a Catholic Orthodox Christian tradition. Encyclopedia Britannica has an even broader definition. Ruthenians, Rusins, or Rusnaks became differentiated into Belarusians, Ukrainians, and Carpatho-Rusins. A similar but slightly tighter definition confines their identity to Western Ukraine and Belarus. The Swedish Academy, however, writes that Ruthenians are a Ukrainian people living in areas in other countries, in which case they are identified through their language and religion. They can also have a local or regional sub-identity, such as the Highland people's Lemkos, Boykos or Hutsuls. Many of those who see themselves as Ruthenians define their identity more narrowly, as a separate nationality with its roots in the Carpathians, a highland culture distinct from the rest of Ukraine. The Lemkos, who originated in Transcarpathia, came to cultivate their own dialect and lifeways in the Carpathians on the border between Poland and Slovakia. 
For a few months in 1918 to 1919, they even declared a short-lived separate Lemkar-Rusin state with the intention to be joined with Russia before Poland gelded the project after 16 months. How many Ruthenians are there today? It's impossible to say. Paul Robert Magoshi, professor of Ukrainian studies at Toronto University, believes that the ethnic group can comprise 1.2 million people living around Eastern Europe. However, if you aggregate the different countries' official definitions, that number drops to below 100,000. As will be clear by now, the Ruthenian identity is hard to pin down chopped to pieces as it has been over the centuries and marginalised to separate highland areas. The formal definitions provide only a fragmentary understanding. The meaning of the concept fluctuates among three interpretations. A West Ukrainian Belarusian linguistic, community-based identity, an exile identity with ties to Ukraine, and a cross-border affiliation with a historical mountain culture around the Carpathians, and therefore also in Ukraine. But perhaps the term Ruthenian really has a function that is not strictly formal, but that is used to sift out a kind of Ukrainian ethnicity from a nationality. Ruthenian ethnicity would then denote something both more deeply based in history and more precise than the broader concept of Ukrainian nationality. All countries and states are constructions that pen different groups into large areas and decide that they belong together within certain geographical and legislative boundaries. Neither nationality nor language needs to follow these boundaries. A language is a dialect with an army, as some linguists like to say. It is precisely here that the Ruthenians have a history to fall back on. For, during the 14th century era of the Lithuanian Grand Duchy, Ruthenian was the kingdom's official administrative language. But the linguistic Ruthenian identity is today like writing in the sand. And whoever searches for a correct, established, transcribed Latin character spelling of the name of the city by the river Uge will easily become frustrated. On Google Maps alone, there are two variants. U-Z-H-H-O-R-O-D and U-Z-J-H-O-R-O-D. There is another spelling, U-Z-H-O-R-O-D, but the most common is the first variant, U-Z-H-H-O-R-O-D. In the evening, Bandy Schultes gets together with some of his summer homecoming friends down by the river. We drink beer and talk about Europe. Tanya, one of them, lives with her husband in Switzerland and works at a hotel. The pay is good, of course, and we're happy there. At the start of the summer, my parents also came to visit. They were impressed by life in Switzerland, the recycling and the green way of thinking and how everything just works and is clean. Stuff like that we're not used to, she explains in her melodious German. Even if you don't work in the West, I think it's worth visiting. It makes you see how things are to be done properly. Her words embarrass me slightly. Coming from Western Europe automatically endows you with a kind of authority. It's in the West where people know how to do things right. But is her view a strength or a weakness? Well, I'd say the jury is still out on that one. 
according to a Pew Research Center survey that asked the citizens of different countries if they saw their own culture as superior to others, the Eastern European peoples are generally more inclined to answer in the affirmative to the question than those in the West. As for the Western European countries, the numbers are all over the place. Perhaps the answers depend on which neighbours they compare themselves to. Norway tops the Western list with 58%. Lowest in Europe is Spain with 20%. And yes, Sweden with 26%. In Russia and Romania, 69% answer in the affirmative. In Poland and the Czech Republic, 55%. Ukraine is at the bottom of the entire former Eastern Bloc with only 41% of its citizens thinking that its culture is superior to others. But even if low national self-esteem could be seen as a tendency to resign, it is an expression of modesty and a readiness for change and development, exactly what Tanya talks about. The idea that the homeland of Ukraine is, well, generally muddled, can facilitate adaptation abroad. The notion probably also operates on a macro level too. Countries that have cultivated a national self-image as unique and superior can find it more difficult to integrate themselves in international communities from which they would otherwise benefit. For 11 centuries, Ukraine has been forced to adjust to the terms dictated by realpolitik and bullying neighbouring superpowers. Its low national self-image hides a sympathetic pragmatism and the seed of an ability to create a more sensible future collectively and unconditionally. I borrow a bike one day to cycle home to the EU. The closest pedestrian border crossing to Slovakia is only 10 kilometres away. The road passes through a string of villages, and in those lying closest to Ushorod, Old hovels have given way to ostentatious edifices to impress Ushorod's new generation of entrepreneurs. As I ride, I find that it is not Slovakia that emerges ever distinctly from the environment, but Hungary. It is outside the city that the Hungarian community has survived. I exchange a few Hungarian pleasantries in a shop, whose manager promptly laments the war against Russia and Putin. My trip to Ushorod did, therefore, not lead to a Hungarian city surrounded by Ukrainian mountain people, but vice versa, to a Ukrainian city surrounded by a Hungarian countryside. My bike ride to Slovakia is a pleasant one. The branches of the fruit trees bend under the weight of the plums, cherries and apples that all seem ripe on this late summer's day, and I stop several times to partake of their bounty. Beyond the fields, the Carpathians rise up in the distance. At the junction, by the fruit-laden trees, lie plastic lids, bags, tins, a wheel, and a dead cat. At the border in the village of Mali Selmensi, the Ukrainian side is abuzz with trade. Slovaks come here on Sunday raids to purchase cheap drink, tobacco, clothes and toys. The border crossing is meticulous, with inspections presentation of passports, and a short queue with a stamp in their passports for entry into the EU. Once in Slovakia, the milieu becomes at once a little stricter, more proper, and without the commerce and hubbub of the Ukrainian side. I make a symbolic phone call to Sweden at domestic rates, order a beer, and cycle aimlessly around the church and the rest of the village. 
I then cross back over the border and pedal back through the villages to Usharod. I've arranged a meeting for the next day with Mikola Siusko, 27-year-old politician and lawyer who works with regional development in Transcarpathia. He is active in his party, the Alliance Self-Help, but in the 2019 parliamentary election, his Christian Democrat party imploded with the customary Ukrainian drama at the national level and plummeted from 11% to under 1%. Ukrainian politics was ever thus. You just have to take it on the chin. We meet at a restaurant by the Uge, where I have gobbled down a plate of the local delicacy banouche, a preparation of cornflour, bacon, pork fat, goat's cheese and mushrooms. Our party's role is less about ideology than it is in the West. The main thing for us is to be an oppositional alternative and to galvanise development in the region, he tells me. On a national level, Mikola Siusko considers the fight against corruption and for the rule of law to be the most crucial political issue. But he adds that democracy is just an empty shell and an instrument for populists if it is not also underpinned by regional grassroots activism. Democracy is more than just elections and large-scale opinion forming. It is based on participation, and if Ukraine is to mature as a democracy, the young must feel that they can shape the future, he explains. Siusko works for You Lead, a program that schools young people in democratic processes. For three years, he has arranged forums for young people to influence things happening close to them, such as language teaching or creating spaces for play and sports. For Transcarpathia, this is also a means of tackling the problem of emigration. The population of the city of Usharod itself hovers around a stable level, but the mountain and rural villages are hemorrhaging people to the cities or other countries. Over half of the population of Zagapatia live in villages, the highest proportion in all of Ukraine. The salaries in Prague and Budapest attract skilled young people from here. Besides, those who speak Hungarian are offered a Hungarian EU passport. This is why you don't hear so much Hungarian in town, he says. The passport perquisite is one of many initiatives for mobilising ethnic Hungarians in the neighbouring countries, part of Viktor Orban's nationalist politics. It is not unlike how Russia hands out Russian passports to Russophones in Donbass. Liberal democracy in Ukraine is under assault from both sides. Regional cooperation initiatives have, according to Mikola Siusko, started to take off. In the setting up of joint councils for different villages, a mechanism has been created that has boosted the budget and, he claims, is making a difference. And then, of course, we have corruption to deal with. Building institutions is difficult. As we end our chat, I ask him about his ethnic background. My parents call themselves Ruthanians. I call myself a Ukrainian. It's no big deal for us. It may be a small question for Mikola, but probably a huge one for Ukraine, which has been home to multiple ethnicities, cultures and languages. Liberals the world over, in Ukraine too, push for a system of national identity based mainly on citizenship within which diversity can flourish. In these turbulent times, Voices are now heard against the use of Russian, and Transcarpathia reminds us that other smaller groups can also be affected. 
Maybe the Hungaro-Ukrainian group can be given a greater say in Ukrainian public life if the country changes tack. Before I get my head down on the night train to Lviv, I take one last walk to the bridge over the Uge, where the river gurgles far below, piteously, as if the city's main artery has been drained and left the riverbed and the quays grotesquely overdimensioned. A stage abandoned by the ensemble. History washes ethnic groups across the world's surface, leaving behind runnels and ever-widening bands of exposed rocky riverbed. Hungarian is heard with decreasing frequency in Ujhorod, and the rural population is in decline. The Ruthenian national identity is fading, and all the remains of Lemkos, Boikos, or Hutsuls are folk songs, embroidered folkware, dialectic idiosyncrasies, fragments of ancient traditions. Andy Warhol, the Ruthenian from nowhere, embraced the global restlessness of modernity. His images of mass-produced celebrity created something unique, using an aesthetic derived from the mass communication of his time. Cans of Campbell's soup, released from their function as food advertisement. Marilyn, disengaged from her role as sex symbol. Mao, liberated from his significance as a politically charged symbol. Coloured, repeated, and exposed in large-scale format. And Warhol, the real artwork, freed from his ethnic heritage, an urban anywhere without roots. An artist, a homosexual, mysteriously standoffish in dark glasses and a wig, a modern Gatsby, and superstar in the limelight of the capital of the modern world. The Ruthenian experience, then. I come from nowhere. Perhaps one can achieve dazzling individuality, or someoneness, we might say, for that very reason.